0: The Book of Exodus Exodus chapter 1 Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Python and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shiphrah and Puah, When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Exodus chapter 2 Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slaves to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. She took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Matthew chapter 16 When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven.
1: How good a carpenter was Jesus? The Bible is long, really long. It would keep you going quite a while on BBC's Desert Island, alongside Shakespeare, another book, eight discs and a luxury solar-powered coffee machine, since you ask. But if you were editing it, the Bible I mean, you might cheerfully take the blue pencil to some quite large chunks while asking for a touch more detail elsewhere to satisfy your curiosity or nosiness. For example, as Chris Bourne asked in his talk in June, did Isaac acquiesce or resist when Abraham bound him, ready for sacrifice? And for me, an impious question, oh, which reminds me. I should make our usual disclaimer for a team service talk we are quite untutored compared to our priests and mary our reader but you might still give some thought to our reflections and if you do we're happy back to my impious question what kind of carpenter was jesus and was he any good at it what did he make furniture Doors, boxes, yokes for animals, farm implements, or what? I've always supposed that he could knock up a decent table and chairs for a reasonable price, but it's frustrating to have no window into what might have been 20 years of working with timber. Perhaps employing, in the words of Joyce Anstruther's hymn, the plane and the lathe, always supposing the family workshop ran to a lathe, I picture Jesus as a lad pulling the ropes to spin the wood for Joseph to cut with some type of chisel. Then, in due course, taking the old man's place. It's disappointing that Jesus didn't use carpentry stories in his parables, not the ones that we know about anyway. There are references to trees, but that's as close as it comes. If you tried to guess Jesus's profession from his stories, You'd have him down as a wine grower. I find it curious too that in medieval times, when people were hot for relics, none of Jesus' workpieces emerged. Not so much as a splinter from the shelf he made for Mary, not even a slice of the true first mortise joint. Does it matter, this fancy of mine? Of course it doesn't. It's just that, a fancy. But maybe, just maybe, it serves to remind us that what we read in the Old Testament and the New Testament is not everything that could have been told. Not everything that happened. Not everything that was said. Not by a long way. What's more, the stories that attained the status of Scripture did not make it there by accident. Which brings us to today's stories about two exceptional men, Moses and Peter, two leaders who shaped their own times and gave shape to two religions, including our own. These in turn provided the moral and ethical rationale for Western civilization, topping up classical Greek and Roman thinking to form the Judeo-Christian tradition that became dominant from Charlemagne onwards. What do their stories have in common? To me, they seem to be validation stories, personal origin stories, as it were. There may be a special term for these things. Tim, Judith, Jenny, Mary, anyone? Moses became a powerful man in Egypt, influential with the Pharaoh and his court. But his distance from the Israelites not exactly the cream of society, could have been a problem. Was Moses one of them? Or one of us to the Levites and the other tribes? The man's origin story was essential to validate his Israelite heritage, his provenance, if you will. Otherwise, who was this guy, this high official assuming leadership of the exiled nation? A man who had a lucky break as an infant and now sought to rescue his mother's people? Or an imposter, luring them into who-knows-what perils? I'll bet that among the complaints of the Israelites in subsequent tough times, there would have been dark mutterings about whose child he really was. Moses himself would have had no memory of how his fostering was engineered but his sister would. Maybe, secretly, for fear of the authorities, she kept and shared what she knew among close family and friends. For years. You can then imagine Levites leading the defence of Moses when the pressure came on. In time, the story's significance led to its being written down, and so it has come to us. Moses in the bulrushes has lit up the Old Testament for generations of children. It is still vivid for us as adults and softens our image of the fierce leader and stern bringer of the law. Now let's look at Peter. In the account from Matthew, Jesus asks his disciples how he is perceived. A quick vox pop. In a climactic moment, Peter declares his belief that Jesus is the Messiah. Roll of drums, fanfare of trumpets, the Messiah. Now why did this story make it into the Gospel? To tell us that Jesus was, is, the Messiah? Nope. This is not a story about Jesus. This is about Peter. We don't need Peter to tell us that Jesus is the Saviour, but we need to know that Peter knew it, said it, and was consequently or otherwise promised by Jesus a role of high importance that turned out to be matched only by Paul's. This exchange with Jesus is Peter's provenance as leader almost his rebirth, far more important than his first meeting with Jesus enabled by his brother Andrew, more important and more positive than his denials of association after Jesus' arrest. We are meant to realise that Peter's change of name from Simon is more significant than giving him a nickname. The authentication of Peter is what allows him despite his famous bluster and blunders, to assume in the Church a level of authority that outlived him? And us? Do we need our own validation stories? We are fond of them, let's face it. Politicians like to stress their humble origins, or that they had once done a proper job, or run a business been anointed by Margaret Thatcher or climbed the Munros with John Smith. It's all about authenticity put to the service of superior authority. Authors employ a similar trope. The rich and the privileged try it on too. And as Christians, where lie the origins of our faith? In the slow infusion of a Christian upbringing? In the flashbang wallop of an evangelist's crusade? In a conversation with a trusted friend? The words of a priest at a funeral? A prayer at a time of desperation? What a book our stories would make, but too ostentatious for my taste. So here's something to try. In private, or with a pal. Write down, as a reflection, as a prayer in a sense, the key moment, or the week, or the period of your life in which you began your journey with Jesus. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.